Let's ask God to help us to be people with the kind of hearts who are willing to receive God's word and put it into practice in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word. We pray this morning that as we look at this very simple to understand but very difficult to apply passage that you'll help us to be people who are soft-hearted, to be people who are willing to change so that we put into practice what your word says and we pray by your grace that you will hold us fast. Help us never to fall away from Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, talk number 18 on the book of Hebrews, our second last one in our 19-week series, our 18th talk in the book of Hebrews. And I hope you've seen that in this whole book, there's really just one big idea. One big idea. In fact, I could put it in one word. One word to summarise the whole book of Hebrews, 19 weeks of your life. I can summarise it in one word. Here it is. Persevere. Persevere in your trust in Jesus. The writer has given us lots of good reasons to persevere. Back in chapter 1, do you remember he said that Jesus is God's full and final revelation. You can know God through Jesus. He then went on to tell us, uh, chapter 2, that, uh, 1 and 2, that Jesus is better than angels. He then went on to tell us, chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. In chapter 4, he told us Jesus can give us a better rest than the Old Testament Sabbath or promised land. We can live with God forever through Jesus. Uh, next chapters, we saw Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament priests. He's offered a better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's the mediator of a better covenant than the Old Covenant. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross, it cleanses us from sin. Jesus is now risen and is alive forever to Talk to God on our behalf so that we can be with God forever through Jesus. The author, he has encouraged us to persevere. He's called on us to persevere. He's warned us what will happen if we won't persevere. He's inspired us with stories of how other people have persevered. He, he's given it to us from every angle. He's left us with no room for doubt. There is nothing that could make it worth giving up on Jesus. With Jesus... We are right with God and looking forward to a joyful eternity. Without Jesus, we are lost, facing the judgment and anger of the God who is a consuming fire. I reckon it's been convincing. I'm convinced in my mind. Jesus is worth more than everything else put together. I mustn't ever give up on him. I hope you're convinced as well. But the thing is, the thing is, when I think of the people I know who've given up on Jesus, it's not usually been a specific mental decision. In fact, if I think of the people who've sat in these pews in the 10, 11 years that I've been here and yet who've fallen away, I can't think of anyone who has come up to me and said, Jeff, I've thought about it and I've made my decision. Jesus is not worth trusting I've counted the cost and I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. It's never happened. It's, it's not the way it happens. More often what happens is that people get caught up in something else. There's no conscious decision to reject Jesus, but they just get tangled up in stuff and they drift away. All this teaching we've had from Hebrews is vital. Vital. I hope it has convinced you to stick with Jesus. But the thing is, there are practical dangers. There are a number of practical things that could lead you away from Jesus. And that's what the author addresses in this last chapter. 
This last chapter is a series of practical commands. Commands about stuff that in reality leads people away from Jesus. Stuff that makes people give up on Jesus. And I've got to say, what's really struck me, it's the way that today it's still the exact same issues. Today it's the exact same issues that lead people to fall away. This was written nearly 2,000 years ago, but nothing's changed. It's, it's so relevant to right now. Now, first commands. The first commands, they're all about relationships in church. On your outline, you can see I've called it fellowship. Fellowship. The author starts off in these commands about fellowship. He starts off by telling the Christians to love each other like brothers. Now, that's something that we're used to hearing as Christians, I think. Uh, love each other like brothers. But, but in the context, this was a very unusual, strange thing to say. The word that is used here from which we get Philadelphia, something like that, brotherly love, it is a word that at the time was only ever used of love in families, in blood families. He's taken that word and he's taken it out of context and applied it to church. It should be quite jarring. So Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. As I say, this can roll off the tongue a bit, but if you think about it, it's pretty radical. And it's no small ask to love people in your church like brothers and sisters, to love them like family. Next command about fellowship, it's about showing hospitality. Uh, Hospitality to strangers who come along to church, whether to to visit the church, newcomers, or whether to serve the church, some kind of itinerant evangelists or something like that. Uh, The author tells his readers to show hospitality. And he reminds them of some stories. Uh, the stories of Abraham and of Lot in the Old Testament because the strangers that they showed hospitality to ended up being angels, angels who blessed them greatly, saved Lot's life. Verse 2. Verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Uh, The next bit about fellowship, the author calls on the Christians to support each other through persecution. Uh, you remember we, back in chapter 10 we saw that the Christians had faced persecution. Some of them had been thrown into prison. Uh, the church had offered sympathy and help at the time where well, the author says, keep on going, keep doing it. Verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Okay, so there's the first set of commands. The readers are commanded to stay in fellowship with their local congregation. to to love the people in their church like brothers and sisters, to show hospitality to newcomers and to those who come to serve and to support each other through the tough times. Well, if I think about the people who I know who have fallen away, even in these last 11 years here at Chatswood, I've got to say this is spot on. This is often the exact path that they take. This is what they forget, that they get busy, They put other things before coming to church and Bible study. They keep their distance in relationships. Don't engage in friendships with people. Uh, Gradually you see less and less of them. They drift to the edges of congregational life until one day they're gone. They don't ever specifically make a decision. They don't say, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. They they don't give up being a Christian uh, with any conscious decision. They just drift out of fellowship. And then somewhere along the line... They're gone. They're not trusting Jesus anymore. I could name names of people who have done this. So how are you going? 
How are you going in your fellowship with other Christians? Would you say that you treat the people in your church like your brothers and sisters? Could you say that? Now, for some people, this church really is like their family. They share in each other's lives. You, you, you engage deeply in relationships. You have strong friendships here. Some people in Bible study this week, they said that they in fact have much closer relationships in church than they do with their own families. They see much more of people in church and they relate more deeply. They can actually engage more deeply with people in church. But for some people, well, you are keeping your distance. You haven't hooked in to relationships at church. You haven't made any friendships. You, you are keeping yourself on the fringes. Brothers and sisters, it is a dangerous thing to do. If you are part of this church, then in a special way, this is your family. In some ways, closer than brothers and sisters, closer than your blood family. It is not good to stay on the fringes. It's not good to keep your distance relationally. I know it can be painful to get engaged in relationships, but it is not good for you to distance yourself. It puts you in danger of drifting away. But what about showing hospitality? Like it says in verse 2, do you open your home up to people? Do you invite newcomers to your place? I'm sorry for newcomers today, you might get 20 invitations. I hope you do. 20 invitations back home for lunch. Uh, I know that some people do invite newcomers. Uh, that is great. But I suspect again that there are people here who have never showed hospitality to church people at all, let alone to strangers. A couple of weeks ago, Warren stood up here and he asked you to open your homes to the university students who are coming to serve next week. Uh, Warren said, he said it is the hardest job that he has to do each year to try to get a dozen or so university students housed for a couple of days. He may have only been joking, but I think he was only half joking. As far, and well, we've just heard that he's finally, three days to go, been able to get hold of enough people to look after the university students. Look, I think it's a real failure on our part that it has been so much stress. It's required emails, it's required phone calls, it's required six weeks of uh, uh, things on the back of the order of service. I really think that we should be the sort of people who see that on the back of the order of service and go, fantastic, here's an opportunity for me to entertain strangers. Because... If we fail in this, we are missing out on a blessing. You might be encouraged to have a keen Christian university student stay with you for a couple of days. Your children might be encouraged to see a keen Christian university student staying with you for a couple of days. Who knows, there might even be an angel or two among them. What about helping people through the tough times? Like it says in verse 3. I know there's no one in jail from our church for being Christian and I know we don't face all that much mistreatment but, but still we need to ask ourselves, are we supporting each other? Are we encouraging each other to stand firm as Christians even when it is tough? Do you ever take the time to talk seriously to people about how they are going as Christians? Do you ever make the effort to, to help people who are doing it tough, to sympathise with them, to pray with them? You know, what goes around comes around. If you're not helping people who are doing it tough now, what makes you think other people will help you when tough times come? I just think about people who really engage in relationships 
And like Hyacinth, you'll get 28 messages on your answering machine from church if you're gone for a couple of months. Or oh, well, like Barry, you'll get visitor after visitor. If you engage, what, comes around, what goes around comes around. If you don't engage, well, don't be surprised if nobody notices that you're gone. The thing is, without their help in the tough times, you might not make it. Okay, did you get the first commands? We need to get serious about fellowship. Second set of commands, second set of commands are about marriage. First, the Christians are called on to honour marriage, to respect the institution of marriage. Verse 4, marriage should be honoured by all. And then second, the Christians are called to limit sex to within marriage. Uh, the author says God will judge adulterers, that is married people who break their promises and have sex with someone other than their spouse. And he says God will judge all the sexually immoral, that is anyone who has sex outside of marriage. Verse 4 again. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Again, this is a thoroughly modern problem. I could give you half a dozen names of people who have chucked in their faith during my time here at Chatswood because of sexual immorality. Women who have left their husbands, women and men who have gone off after non-Christians. I think of one bloke a few years ago. His name was Nick. He was going great as a Christian. I was meeting him with one-to-one, meeting him with one-to-one every week. He was growing as a Christian. And then he met this pretty girl with nice tattoos next thing I know he's shacked up with her I talked to him about it come on Nick come on he goes ah it's fine Jeff I'm still trusting Jesus all is cool never to be seen again how are you going on this one are you are you honoring marriage to start with I know our society denigrates marriage People say it's just a piece of paper or they say it's a manifestation of patriarchal oppression. Uh, I I know in some ways it's easier to to shack up together. I know many marriages are not easy. But the fact is, marriage is an important gift of God to us. As the prayer book reminds us, marriage is given by God for at least four good reasons. First, he gave it so that a husband and wife can help and look after each other as they serve him. Second, God gave marriage for the orderly expression of human sexuality. Third, he gave it so that children can be born and brought up in the love and security of stable and happy homes. And finally, God gave marriage so that human society and his church might be healthy and have a firm and stable foundation. Marriage is a good gift of God. And even if society denigrates it or cheapens it or tries to replace it or redefine it, Christians should not get on that bandwagon. Christians should honour God's gift of faithful heterosexual marriage. And Christians should encourage those who are married to stick at it, to to work hard at loving each other and helping each other to serve Jesus. If we assume that we're stuck together, let's encourage each other to not make each other so miserable, but just make it nice. Christians should never counsel people to divorce. Jesus is clear about it. What God has joined together, let man not separate. We should honour marriage. As Christians, we should also stand out for our sexual purity. 
The other day I was putting together a contract for Rebecca to come and work with us next year. And I got some help from John Irvin, who does this job in church offices. And in the contract he gave me, this is what it says. This is in Rebecca's contract. You are reminded that the maintenance of biblical morality is profoundly important to those who are employed by the church. As an employee, you must not engage in behaviour that is likely to bring the church's name into disrepute. In particular, the session will not tolerate any act of fornication, adultery, sexual harassment, abusive power or embezzlement. I was talking to our lawyer, John Martin, about this, about this contract the other night, and he was quite struck by this clause. He said, I cannot imagine something like this being in a contract to employ a solicitor. It's true, isn't it? Can you imagine something like this in an employment in your work? Not something you expect in our culture anymore. But as our culture heads more and more down the path of sexual chaos, we Christians need to stand out. We need to stand out as people who keep the marriage bed pure, who do have sex in our marriages, but who don't engage in sexual immorality or adultery. How are you going on that one? Are you being pure? Are you being faithful? Again, realise what's at stake. You are flirting with great danger. God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. His word says it. Now, that affair could spell the end of your Christian faith. You could end up in hell. And you could bring the other person down to hell with you. Not to mention your spouse who you've betrayed and who is now feeling lost. Uh, not to mention the children that you've now set such a terrible example for. Not to mention the non-Christian family who would now never consider Christianity because of a hypocrite like you. Uh, they could all end up there in hell with you. Not to mention the church that will be split and divided because of the relationships that you have destroyed. I don't think any marriage could be so bad that it's worth the risk. I don't think any affair could be so good that it's worth the risk. Brothers and sisters, please do us a favour. Have sex with your husband or wife and only have sex with your husband or wife. It is much safer for all of us. The third set of commands third set of commands relate to issues of money. The readers are told to not love money. Instead, they should be happy with what God has given them. Now, more than that, they should be content with God himself because through Jesus, God has promised to be our God. Verse 5 again. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you Never will I forsake you. You may remember, as we saw back in chapter 10, some of, these, some of the Christians in this church actually had their, their, um, their possessions confiscated before. Uh, trouble could be coming again. And so the author is reminding them, no matter what stuff you have, no matter what stuff you don't have, through Jesus, you have what he called back there, better and lasting possessions. You have eternal access to God himself. You should be able to be content with that. How are you going on this one? This one's a bit more subtle, isn't it? Are you a lover of money? Or are you content with what you have? More than that, are you content with what you have in Christ, even if you have nothing? Would you be willing to give up everything you have on this earth rather than lose your inheritance in Jesus? 
Now, when I put it like that, it all sounds very romantic, doesn't it? Yes, of course, I'd give up everything for Jesus. But it's, it's not likely to be one big decision like that, is it? It's more likely to be a whole heap of little decisions. Decisions about how much work you'll do. Decisions about how high you'll climb the ladder. Decisions about how much debt you'll, you'll take on. Decisions about what you will sacrifice for the sake of the security and the influence and the approval that money can give. Again, this is a very modern issue. I can name names. Names of people who have sat in these pews, who have left Jesus behind to chase after money. They didn't do it because they were greedy so much. So It's not greed that I've seen. It's more they wanted to be secure or they wanted to be comfortable or they wanted to gain influence or they wanted to get the approval of their family or their peers. Now, I can't see into your heart and I've got to say even for me to honestly assess my own heart on this, it's quite hard. But I've got to say this. If someone looked in at us from the outside, I suspect that they wouldn't see very much difference between us and our non-Christian neighbours in terms of money. We say we don't love money, we say we're content with what God's given us, but externally at least, our lives don't back up what we say very well at all. And friends, this puts us in real danger. It was Jesus himself who talked about the thorny soil. People who hear God's word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Brothers and sisters, we need to honestly take stock of ourselves. We need to think through our dreams. We need to think through our aspirations. We need to think through how we spend our time and our energy. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. Brothers and sisters, be honest, be honest. Who is your master? Okay, we've had fellowship, marriage, money. The last section is about fear. It's about trusting God to the point where you don't fear people. Now, the author quotes from Psalm 118 and he calls on the Christians to trust in God as their helper and not fear people and what they can do. Verse 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's another very modern problem. Now, here in Chatswood, uh, we don't have anyone putting a knife to our throat telling us to give up our faith in Jesus. But for those of us who love the acceptance and approval of other people, it can be hard going. Now, lots of other people don't approve of our faith in Jesus. They don't approve of us when we stand up and stand out. I can name names on this one as well. Names of people who sat in these pews. But the pressure of family or the pressure of peer group pushed them away. Now, they wouldn't have put it like this, but they feared people more than they feared God. And it's Jesus who said, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Again, it's not likely to be a big decision. Uh, I now choose my peer group over Jesus, something like that. It's, it's not going to happen in, in a big decision like that. It's, again, it's going to be the little decisions. I'll go out with my workmates instead of going to Bible study. I'll be at the family gatherings on Sunday instead of at church. Little decisions. Decisions that are not necessarily wrong in themselves. Fine decisions to make. But gradually, we become the sort of people who put what other people think above what God wants. And then, one day, you look back and you're not a Christian anymore. Brothers and sisters, I hope, like me, Uh, that you've been convinced by this book of Hebrews. I hope, like me, you are sure in yourself. Nothing could make it worth giving up on Jesus. I hope hope you've got this straight in your thinking. It's been hammered in now 18 weeks in a row and you get one more week next week. Uh, Look, I hope there's nobody who now thinks, oh, I'm not sure if it's worth it. I hope it's very clear, all right, in our minds. The thing is, we've got to get it straight in practice. In our big decisions, in our little decisions... We need to do what the author's told us here. Engage deeply in fellowship with God's people so that you will miss and be missed if you're not part of the church. We need to be sexually pure and faithful. We need to be content with what we have in Christ, not love money. We need to fear God and trust him more than we fear people. Friends, God's word says, beware when you think you stand lest you fall. Did you get that? Beware when you think you stand, lest you fall. Other people have fallen away before us. People who knew what you know. People who believed what you believe, but who fell away the death of a thousand cuts. Little decision by little decision. Friends, don't do it. Don't follow them. No way. Let's persevere in practice. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that he has done all it takes to give us eternal access to you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might stand firm, trusting in him all our days. And we pray that you, through the blood of the eternal covenant who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would equip us with everything good for doing your will. We pray that you would work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. And so we pray by your strength, by your help, with your help, the same thing that we've prayed every week for this last 18 weeks, we pray that none of us would ever fall away or drift away or turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ, but that all of us would stand firm in Christ and rejoice together at that last day in him forever. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.